I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is the weekly briefing for the week ending February 25th. History is always revealing itself. That's true of technological history, too. Sometimes we rediscover evidence that had been obscured or forgotten and learn new things. But history is also about people doing extraordinary things under extraordinary circumstances. And it's not always happy news. In 1967, three NASA astronauts were testing in preparation for launch. They were the crew of what was set to be the first manned launch in the Apollo program. That's the program that would put a man on the moon just over two years later. As these astronauts sat on the launch pad, a fire was sparked in their command module. None of them survived. That was despite some extraordinary efforts of some of the men who were on the launch pad that day. Among them, there is one man still living, and he only recently related for the very first time his experiences of that tragic day. Our guest this week is Matthew Bedingfield, grandson of James Gleaves, who helped try to save the Apollo 1 astronauts all those years ago. We'll get to that interview right after we run down some of the news we covered in EE Times this week. The dream of autonomous vehicles has been deferred, but not abandoned. There are still technological, sociological, and ethical questions that must be answered before vehicles can drive themselves. This week, EE Times launched a special project. That's what we call a package of related articles on autonomous driving. Our editors and contributing experts address developing sensor technology, the lack of maturity of self-driving software, and the problem of autonowashing, whitewashing the problems with autonomous driving. Our autonomous driving special project is a lead-in for EE Times' second annual Advanced Automotive Tech Forum. This free virtual conference focuses on the technology that is enabling the motor industry's transition to electric propulsion systems and the transformation of motor vehicles into some of the most advanced electronic systems on the planet. The event starts on March 8th with some tutorials and continues on March 9th and 10th with speakers from McLaren Applied, Corvo, ST Microelectronics, Tirius Research, Semicast, and more. It's all about electric vehicles, EVs, and autonomous vehicles, AVs. Register at nextgenevav.com. That's all one word, nextgenevav.com. Other stories this week cover Bosch's intention to expand its fab capacity far beyond its previously announced expansion. A new lower power chip from AI startup Aspinity, a new chip from Orca for the Internet of Things that will enable systems to link directly to low Earth orbit satellites, and an analysis of how Intel will have to rely on TSMC to make good on its own aspirations of catching up with erstwhile competitor TSMC. All of these stories and more are on the web at eetimes.com. If you're on this episode's webpage already, there are links directly to the articles I just mentioned. Technologists are in the business of building the future. Looking forward is intrinsic to the endeavor but it's still valuable to occasionally refer to the past for a lot of reasons. Sometimes it helps to look back at where we were because that helps us orient ourselves on where we intend to go. 
we can learn lessons from the past. Finally, it can be inspiring to recall those people who exhibited qualities we want to encourage and emulate. In the technology industry, there are ample opportunities to celebrate qualities such as imagination, ingenuity, and craft. But there are also instances in technological history of dedication, bravery, and sacrifice. And that's the kind of story that we have next. In 1967, the space race was already in progress. Russia had been first with an orbital satellite and the first to put a man into orbit. And the U.S. was still catching up, its self-image of being technologically superior damaged. America had vowed to put a man on the moon before the decade was out. NASA created the Apollo program to get us there. The first manned flight in that program, ultimately designated Apollo 1, was scheduled for January 27, 1967. The cabin caught fire during a launch rehearsal, however, killing all three crew members, Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee. We remember the pilots who lost their lives, but all these years later, we're going to hear from someone who was on that launch pad that day who had never recounted his experience before now. Our guest today is Matthew Bedingfield, a D.C. whistleblower attorney and the grandson of James Gleaves, a member of the North American Aviation Technical Crew on the night of the Apollo 1 fire. Stationed at the spacecraft level on Pad 34 at Kennedy Space Center for a simulated countdown, Gleaves and his colleagues fought flames and toxic smoke to open the spacecraft hatches. Despite their heroic efforts, the three astronauts all died. At the instant the crew reported a bad fire, the NAA technicians could have escaped to the swing arm on the launch pad to relative safety. They did not. When the spacecraft's pressure vessel ruptured, hurling Gleaves and other technicians against the exit door, they remained on station struggling for about five minutes through the smoke and flame to save the crew of Apollo 1. James Gleaves spent that night in the hospital. Gleaves is the last surviving member of that NAA technician crew. Recalling the events of that day was something he had avoided until recently. His grandson talked to E.E. Times about the heroism of James Gleaves. The interviewer is my friend and colleague, George Leopold. Matthew Bedingfield, thanks for being with us. Um, you are the grandson of uh, one of the uh, last of the technical uh, technicians on Pad 34 uh, on the evening of January 27th, 1967, the Apollo 1 fire. Can you t- tell us uh, a little bit about your grandfather, uh, what he did that night, and, and what he's doing today? Yeah, thanks uh, so much for having me on, George. It's great to sit here and, and talk through this with you. I, I know you're a fan of that era, as am I. But yeah, my, my grandfather is Jim Gleaves or James D. Gleaves, and he worked for North American Aviation at the time of the fire. And he was a lead mechanical technician on shift on January 27th uh, when the fire erupted. So it's it's really been a very interesting part of our family history. It's something that he has taken a long while to really talk about. And um, yeah, it's something that's fascinated me for for a long time. So, I mean, I'll kind of go quickly to the beginning and then, uh, you know, we can kind of go from there. But growing up, I I distinctly remember uh, sitting in my grandparents' living room. They live 
outside of Orlando, Florida, uh, at you know near the U- University of Central Florida campus, and they're on this little lake called Lake Price, and you know we my cousins and I would sit, and they had this bookshelf outside, and uh, you know it was Lost Moon by by Lovell and 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 uh, Jeff Kluger and right Jim Lovell of Apollo Thirteen fame. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, we, we know it, that book eventually became uh, the Apollo 13 movie, a famous one with Tom Hanks. And uh, I think it was actually one visit. I, I probably was in fifth grade or sixth grade. And, you know, my dad was kind of thumbing through the book. And, of course, in the first chapter, uh, Kluger, Kluger and Lovell go through the events of the fire and, and the Apollo 1 tragedy. And, you know, in that chapter, you'll see uh, my grandfather's name. And so, of course, we started peppering him with questions. And, uh, you know, at that point, he just was very mum about it. He, he did not like talking about it. I think the most that we really would get out of him was, uh, you know, just a comment that, you know, hey, we did what we could to help. Or, you know, it, it was a, a really dark day. You know, n- no details. You know, if we if we did follow up questioning, uh, uh, he he really would try to change the subject, and uh, it just wasn't something that he, you know, for good reason, didn't didn't love to talk about. So, right, right, not un, not unlike uh, 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 war veterans, they always say the heroes are the guys who didn't come back. It sounds like he had sort of the same attitude. Very much so. Yeah. Um, you know, my gra- my grandmother was was a little bit more open. You know, with talking about the events surrounding it. And of course she was sitting at home. They had a trailer at the time in the same area that they're at now, but uh, sitting in the trailer, she, she'll recall that with, with her two very young daughters, one of which is my mom, uh, of course. Um, and just seeing the, the news unfold you know, on the TV and thinking, oh my gosh, you know, my husband is there and waiting for him to come home. And so she she would kind of recount those stories and you know but again the conversations never really got far if uh, if grandpa was in the room so right right so let's let's go to to the day of of the fire and and uh, my recollection is is that they uh, the crew Gus Grissom Ed White Roger Chaffee were uh, placed in the spacecraft and the door hatches were sealed about one p.m. Eastern time. And that there were several shifts of North American technicians, right? And I think your your grandfather was on a shift. That, did he come on about four four p.m. during this very long plugs out test, the electrical test? Yes, yes. Um, you know, he he was there with with a few other North American men that, uh, of course, eventually were, uh, you know, given the. NASA Medal for Exceptional Bravery, Bravery for their efforts. You know, one of them was, you know, Don Babbitt. Um, I think he was the lead at the time. He, I think he had taken over for uh, Louis Curatolo. Um, and you know, if you look at some of the, the evidence from the White Room that, the day of the fire, you can kind of see where they, you know, they checked in and checked out. The pad leads did. You know, I think William Schick was uh, assistant uh, test supervisor at the time, but yeah, he, you know, Grandpa was there with um, several other uh, North American technicians when when the accident broke out, and, and he was he was listening in on, w- on what was going on. Um, right. And of course, you know, you hear, you hear about there was a, an odor that was somewhat smelled, and Chris, some of course, complaining about 
you know, not being able to hear, if we can't hear between two or three buildings, you know, and I, I'm paraphrasing, but how on earth are we going to talk to each other from the moon here? Right. One of the last transmissions from the spacecraft. Exactly. Exactly. So he was on shift and uh, everything w- was going, <laughs> I, I think I was about to say normal, but it, it wasn't going normally. They were having, yeah, they they were were, having a lot they of- were, They were just about to come off of a long hold because they had this persistent communications problem. And then a plan was to restart the countdown uh, about 6.30 Eastern time on that Friday evening. And then the idea here was to disconnect the, the spacecraft from uh, external power and make yeah. sure that, that the internal power was getting to all of the systems. And then at four ticks after 6.31, something happened. And your grandfather said he heard a sound. What was that? Yeah, well, was, well, so, you know, they were listening in, um, you know, I believe it was him and L.D. Reese who were, uh, L.D. Reese was a North American quality control inspector. I believe they were outside of the white, white room on the umbilical. And I, I think they were waiting on word to, to like you were mentioning, to, to pull it. And they, they heard the commotion. You know, I think they heard, you know, after the clock ticks, ticked past six 6.30 Eastern, you know, they heard you know, Chaffee's cry for help, uh, saying, you know, we've got a bad fire. Uh, they heard the commotion going on. Um, and then Babbitt cried out, you know, get the men out of there, get them out of there. And, and from there, you know, chaos continued to unfold. And, uh, you know, my grandpa ran in and I I believe what, what happened was, you know, he, he yelled, let's, let's get these men out. Um, as they opened the white room door, of course, at the time, there was smoke billowing from the command module. And the way Grandpa kind of talks about it is like, it, it knocked us back. I mean, we we had a tough time not only seeing, but breathing. Um, uh, you yeah, know. The, the, pre- the spacecraft pressure vessel ruptured after approximately about 20 seconds, right? Yep. Yeah. And, and, and uh, even though... Gus Grissom tried to dump the cabin pressure. It had built up so much inside. Yeah. And it just blew the pressure vessel. And I think that's when they got knocked backwards. They did. And, and you know, there, there's some, you know, Grandpa stated that he was knocked against a door. And I think it was an orange door in the white room. And he ultimately was proven right. But I think there was some debate afterwards of, well, you know, where exactly was the door and, and, and where did you get, you know, hit, hit, you know, where did you hit into the door? And that, that became somewhat of an issue from what I remember. But yeah, I mean, I, he, the way he describes it, it was just, you know, I, I'm watching the Olympics now and the bobsledders, for instance, they're, they're talking about how you, when, once you go down the chute, it's really pure adrenaline and you are, you have very little time to think. And I think that's kind of what the men in that room were experiencing was just, it's fight or flight. You you are just clamoring desperately to try to get that hatch open. And I think one one person had, you know, props, I think was the name of the man. He he had kind of been yelling like, blow the hatch. Why don't we try to blow the hatch? And, you know, you had mentioned the sound. um, And I think it was the command module rupturing, essentially. The pressure hit a certain time, uh, you know, uh, PSI and it it just couldn't withstand the pressure and and I think at that time they were they were thinking okay if the flames are erupting out of the command module and it's dripping down 
uh, do we have a <laughs> a even more catastrophic event on our hands here? So, but the the, the sound you were referring to, you know, Grandpa has talked about this, and uh, he he testified to Rocco Patron and North American representative uh, the Sunday after the fire. He he said it sounded like if you put a firecracker in a can and lit it off. Um, so, I mean, uh, George, as you can imagine, you know, you're seeing, you know, uh, you know, flames shooting out of this, uh, machine here. Um, you know, smoke billowing out. Um, you know, if my grandpa's first thought I think was, am I going to make it home to my girls? And, and you know, one of the things I commend, you know, not only my grandfather for, but the other men that were around him were, you know, is the fact that they could have gotten out and just said, to heck with this, uh, we've, this is a lost cause, and I'm getting the heck out of here. And no, they, they had to pull Grandpa out at one point because he was about to pass out and give him some time on on the swing arm to, to get a breath, and, he, and they went right back in. Right. And, that, and after five minutes with no proper firefighting equipment, no gas mask, anything like that, they managed to get, the, the, get through these three hatches. The, the inner hatch was a plug hatch, which was why the pressure was so great. And they did get the hatches open. And of course, by then, it was too late. Uh, the, the crew was dead. I, I think I had read somewhere that the cabin pressure really peaked at 29 psi and twice twice so, of, yeah. twice what sea level pressure is and like 8000 pounds of pressure kind of pushing yeah. up yeah. against this and it really was an engineer you know I don't know George would you call it an engineering failure uh you know the, the hatch design at least yeah it was it was referred to as a plug door and the idea was that with the with the pressure it, it, the internal pressure would seal the door and the part of the, the the astronauts hated that hatch, but it saved weight, and weight was the was the key consideration. And then, of course, one of the things that came out of the fire was they they got rid of that plug door and replaced it with a swing open door that they could open in approximately three seconds. So so they managed to get get the hatch hatches open. The crew is dead. There's an investigation, but your grandfather played another role. Uh, specific to what happened to the spacecraft, spacecraft 012, otherwise known as Apollo 1. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, one of, and just for some context, you know, I'm a, four, I like to call myself a recovering journalist. Uh, I used to write for Bloomberg. Uh, I was on the legal beat. I'll, I'll leave it at that. So, I'm, when I hear this story, I'm, of course, naturally inquisitive and want to kind of poke and prod for more answers. And one of the things that I, I really find interesting about my grandfather's insight into this is, you know, he was, he was kind of a part of it from beginning to end. He, he of course worked for North American and was a pad technician. So he was a part of the manufacturing development of the command module. He was there during the actual event. He then was responsible for helping to dismantle the the uh, command module, which 
you know, George, I think I, I think I sent you a video actually last night of um, some footage of them taking it apart. And yep. I mean, it was just, you know, like like the Apollo project in general, it was just a monumental effort. Uh, yeah. It was just... This was a, f- a forensic uh, autopsy on the spacecraft, trying to pin, trying to pinpoint what went wrong and fix it. Yeah, and you know, you know, they if a screw was turned or taken out, it was recorded. How many turns did it take? What mm-hmm. what if any issue did you have taking this single screw out uh, or bolt or whatever it was? Just just tens of thousands of pieces that had to be accounted for and analyzed and documented. And, um, you know, there was, of course, it was a joint effort between North American and NASA to get that done. So he, mm-hmm. he got to experience that. And, um, uh, you know, and this is, of course, after, you know, spending the night in the hospital after the fire and then being pulled out of, you know, his house that following Sunday to give his recollections of the event. So, so then he kind of went into the disassembly and, and, and worked with the team on that. And, and then he was a, uh, uh, one of the crew members on a tugboat that transported the, the, this burnt piece of history, this burnt capsule up to Langley uh, Research Facility in, in Langley, Virginia. Um, and and he, ta- he has some fun stories about that in terms of, you know, working with the crew and, you know, they went fishing off the side of the tugboat and um, played cards and, you know, but I think, you know, it's maybe the only good memory in a string of like, you know, this horrific event. You know, I I think even when he was on that tugboat transporting, you know, it up to Langley, he, he would catch a glimpse of, uh, you know, at least the vessel that the capsule was, was held in and uh, it probably shot him right back to that night. Yeah, right. And the spacecraft is still at uh, NASA Langley stored away. Exactly. Yeah. So it's um, yeah. It's, I, you and I have talked about this, George. It's it's kind of part of the shame of uh of the entire event is that the capsule itself is not more prominently displayed, and you know the the hatches are, and and um, you and I have both been to Kennedy Space Center's exhibit on. Apollo 204 or Apollo 1. Um, and it's, it's, it's just, you know, my grandfather, you know, I had, I had mentioned before, was reluctant, reluctant to talk about the event. And I think in his older age has been more willing to share with his grandkids his experience and his perception. And, and everyone from that day, you know, uh, has their own perception of what happened. And you know, everyone has their own truth. And um, what they experienced. And it's just, it's invaluable to hear everyone's collective perceptions. And But he was invited to see the Apollo 1 exhibit, you know, for a private tour. So he, he agreed, although probably a little bit reluctantly. And uh, he took he took my wife and I and, and some of our other family and we got to go see it. And uh, it, it just was such an emotional day. And part of that was one of the most striking uh, memories that I have and, and a picture that I have to this day is is him looking through the glass at the three hatches that he personally helped to to get open that day and uh, 
it, it uh, I think he was probably lost in thought just uh, you know looking at those and you know, got a picture of him um, looking at his old North American employee ID and and then we got to go out to launch complex 34 which um, was just such a moving experience and he he really hadn't been back there since uh, that day so yeah yeah it's like the Vietnam vets going back to Vietnam uh, 30 years later. Yeah, and and uh, in their to their credit, uh, the the folks at NASA in, did include sort of the check in area for all of these uh, North American technicians, and and your grandfather's ID card is is in the display. So yes, yeah, it's uh, you know as as a grandchild, it's of course such an honor to experience those things alongside your grandfather, um, but. Yeah, it's 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 interesting to cause he was about my age when when this kind of all unfolded. I, I think he was a little bit older, but you know, not not too far off. So, kind of looking at that picture of him and uh, it, it brings a new you know new appreciation to uh, the word grandfather and how I use it. Yeah, no question that uh, James Gleaves and his fellow technicians were heroes that day. Matthew Bedingfield, thanks a lot for your time. Thanks so much for having me, George. Hope to do it again. You've been listening to Matthew Bedingfield, grandson of the last surviving member of the National Aviation Crew working on that first manned Apollo launch. Go to eetimes.com to read Bedingfield's account. The article is called The Apollo One Fire, Remembering and Learning the Hard Lessons. George Leopold is not only an EE Times editor, he is the biographer of Gus Grissom, one of the pilots who lost his life in the Apollo 1 fire. George's book, Calculated Risk, The Supersonic Life and Times of Gus Grissom, is in print and can be ordered from your favorite bookseller. And that concludes another episode of The Weekly Briefing. Thank you for listening. The Weekly Briefing is available in the places one might expect, like iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. But if you go to our website at eetimes.com, you'll find a transcript along with direct links to all of the stories we've mentioned, among other resources. The Weekly Briefing is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.